When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I just did a test with these things because they'd use such high quality paper on them and the laminate cover. One book will stop multiple 22 caliber rounds at point blank range, which was pretty cool. Like it literally, they all stop around page 168 of one book. Now two books will stop nine millimeter. You literally can use them as improvised body armor, which is like skill number eight in book one. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo and we're talking with Clint Emerson, author of 100 Deadly Skills and the 100 Deadly Skills Survival Edition. We're gonna talk about Navy SEALs and the NSA, Special Forces Training and Social Dynamics, Boy Scouts and how it started as a spy school for boys, I did not know that, and some cultural and physical awareness, how we make judgments and are judged by others based on factors we may not even be aware of. That and a whole lot more. Enjoy this episode with Clint Emerson. We're glad to have you here with us at AOC. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC Toolbox, where we discuss concepts like reading body language, having charismatic nonverbal communication, negotiation techniques, networking, influence strategies, mentorship, the science of attraction, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. Check that out at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox. Also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, that's where you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, here's Clint Emerson. Did I just hear that you have a rectal cache or something (laughs) like that? Let's start with the rectum. Yeah, that's book one. Book one is more personal, I would say. (laughs) Intimate, if you will. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The survival edition is more like a playbook for dealing with different kinds of crisis. You know, everything from, you know, virtual stuff to you know, reality, natural disaster, man-made disaster. But the first book is the one that pushed the limits on, you know, disposing of a dead body, you know, hiding shit up your ass. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it it just reminds me of, is it Pulp Fiction, where he's like, your father had this watch in his ass for four years. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look, as men, our places to hide objects are severely limited I guess as a human, generally, we can't hide too many things on our body, but we do have many more limitations than you might think. And I can't believe we're starting the show with this. Give me an example of something that you would need to conceal in your backside in an emergency situation. Well, on a serious note, you know, if you know you're going in behind enemy lines, you know you're going to be operating at the highest risks, then you might need to hide things in your rectum because the first thing bad guys do if 
you get captured is strip you down butt naked. And so you still want a means of escape. And those means of escape can be either hidden in different kinds of, you know, materials that look like scars. Or what I put in the book is you can take a, a cigar tube, which is aluminum and air and water tight. You can do the shorties. I don't recommend the long ones. And you can <laughs> voice of experience. You can preload it with everything from razor blades, handcuff keys, rolled up money. You can even punch a hole in the cap and put a nail in there to where it turns into an improvised ice pick or an improvised weapon of some sort. What's significant about it is it's been going on in the world of espionage for decades. And when certain operatives or operators uh, travel the globe with a, a substantial risk of being captured, they will go ahead and be more preemptive and proactive with where they hide things so that it increases, you know, a level of success when they try to escape. So you can put anything you want it, but initially it's, you know, a micro compass, money, and then means of escape, which could be razor blades, handcuff keys, you name it, all put into these small cigar tubes. And, you know, you can use, uh, you know, any kind of line or dental floss so that you can grab it like a tampon, pull it out and use the tools that you have on you, in you. Right, yeah. You don't want to wait for nature to take its course when you're like, I really need an escape <laughs> weapon and a handcuff key. Well, you got to wait till tomorrow morning. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Always escape as soon as you can. <laughs> yes. Actually, that's a really good real piece of advice. We were talking with Gavin DeBecker about the gift of fear. And yeah. I was telling him how I saw him on Oprah in like 1994 or sitting at home with my mom, probably on some random afternoon. And he said something like, never go to the secondary location, which is the same thing that you kind of just said, escape as soon as you can. And I got kidnapped by a fake taxi in Mexico City six, seven years later, and I remembered going, oh, crap, we're going to the secondary location. And that was probably a game changer for me. That's like the one piece of advice that has definitely worked for me and seems to have a really high leverage point because it's tempting to go, all right, I'm in the back of a pickup with these ISIS guys. I should just wait until we get where we're going and then I'm not in a moving car and then I can escape from there. And it's like, no, then you're in a compound in a village that's unfriendly in another province with an injury. You just got to get out of the truck, right? Even if it means yeah. pulling something out of your b-hole and stabbing somebody in the neck with it. You know, so be yeah, it, right? Exactly. You know, hopefully it's covered in fecal matter and you're stabbing them with it. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Gavin's book came out pre-9-11, you know, so since then and with the number of kidnappings and everything else that's been going on, you know, starting with AQ all the way to ISIS, it's, yeah, it's escape as soon as you can. You're not, you don't even want to wait for the first stop, much less the second. So, you know, you're waiting for the stop sign or the stop light or a very slow right-hand turn and you're getting out of that vehicle, you know? So that's kind of where we're at today for sure. Right, because I think now it's sort of been established, it's better to literally run with them shooting at you in any direction in a zigzaggy line than to wait until you get to Anbar province or something like that and then try to get out of the village in the mountains where you ended up after six hours of driving. Always got to make sure you serpentine. Serpentine. That's right. Zigzag, zigzag. Yep. 
That's right. Dispel this myth for me or confirm this this rumor. The first thing I thought when you we were talking about hiding stuff where the sun don't shine was, oh, maybe you keep something in there. Like if you end up getting captured by ISIS, you can just end it quick because you don't want to end up on CNN wearing a blindfold. I assume they don't give you something whereby you can take your own life, right? They just expect that you're going to escape or die trying. Is that the case? I mean, in my profession, yeah, you're just going to fight to the death. For everything that I personally went through, I was never thinking about getting captured, you know, even though I had, you know, all of this kind of proactive gears and tools in place. But it is without a doubt the last thing, if not the one thing you just don't consider, because, yeah, it's going to end badly and it's probably going to be a nightmare that no one should go through. So, yeah, there's nothing given to us, you know, unless you want to keep the last round in your magazine of your pistol when you're all out of bullets. That's the only thing given to you. (laughs) Yeah, sure. They just expect that you're going to use that last one on one of the five guys that entered the room and then try to twist necks until you get shot. Right. I assume that's kind of how it goes. Yeah, you might. Or you just stick it in your mouth and go ahead and get it over with. But no, man, I mean, fighting the end is, I would have to say for most guys, is the only option. What is your background and your training? A lot of people aren't familiar exactly with what you do and where you came from. Let's start from that beginning. Yeah. So I joined the Navy back in 94, wanted to be a SEAL. I wanted to be a SEAL since I was probably 10 years old when I met my first SEAL in the Frankfurt airport. I was traveling. I grew up in Saudi, so they make you leave the country, you know, at least once a month. They pay the family to go on vacation and renew their visas. So we ended up always going through Germany on our way back to the States. And one of those trips, I ended up in the bar and there stands this uh, guy with a tattoo on his arm. I asked what that was. He said it was a trident. I was like, well, what's a trident? And he said it's a symbol that represents, you know, a community and I kept poking and prodding. Finally, he kind of gave it up and told me some cool stories and I was sold. So back then, you know, that was the 80s. There was no books. There was really very little out there about SEALs. So, but I was uh, done at that point. Anyway, got done with college and immediately joined and then did 20 years. I did half my time at SEAL Team 3 on the West Coast with popular SEALs like Chris Kyle and Glenn Doherty and a couple of others. And then my last 10 years was at SEAL Team 6. And I retired January 2015. Why did you grow up in Saudi? I know somebody's thinking, wait, how are you going to let that go? Why were you growing up in Saudi? A diplomat, military? (laughs) Yeah, my dad worked for Aramco, which is kind of like it is the biggest oil company in the world. Nobody has ever heard of That's Saudi oil. It's basically owned by the Saudis, but Americans pull it out of the ground. So my dad went over as an engineer. We grew up there, or I grew up there from the second grade pretty much to high school. Gotcha. Okay. That must have been a weird childhood, to say the least, because you're growing up in this American bubble, this Western bubble where you're, is it true you're in kind of a neighborhood where you have everything you need there, but it's gated. You're not just hanging out in the middle of Riyadh or Jeddah or something like that, because the cultures are isolating and they're purposely, like you said, weirdly keeping you guys isolated. They don't want to quote unquote, pollute their Islamic Sharia environment with Western values, right? So everybody's kind of in one area. Everybody knows each other. You're basically growing up in a big high school, right? You're absolutely correct. These are compounds that, uh, you know, kind of like an oasis in the middle of the desert with a barbed wire fence around it and anti-aircraft guns back then because it was the fear of Libya. And Libya, if they were going to strike Americans, it was going to be into Saudi because they didn't have anything that could go any further. 
the compounds were, you know, were an oasis. It was, you know, it's all desert until you hit that fence line and all of a sudden it's green grass and palm trees and, you know, Olympic swimming pools. And, you know, it's uh, probably wasn't a bad deal for my parents as a kid. You know, you're just rolling with it. It's all Westerners. You know, my best friends were Brits and Canadians and uh, we roamed around just causing trouble, pretending to be ninjas and, you know, getting away with pretty much anything. But you are surrounded by that culture. And it was another factor to becoming a SEAL. You know, the SEAL piece was intriguing because, oh, you get to, you know, blow shit up and kill people and get paid for it. But the other half of that was I wanted to like growing up in that society made me want to go back. You know, I really didn't grow up liking them too much. So as a youngster, I was like, I want to come back and kill these people someday. You know, how they treat my dad, how they treat women, this and that, all the horrible stories and things that you witness growing up there that nobody ever hears about outside Saudi. You know, it makes you want to come back and make things right to a certain degree. And now, of course, as an adult, I get it. You know, there's thousands of cultures all over this planet. You know, who am I to say which one's right or wrong? And they're just all different. Yeah, it seems like something that an American teenager culture-wise could never accept. No, I mean, like, I'll give you an example. One of my best friends was Canadian, and uh, we were probably 10 or 11 years old, and he's trying to write his name with urine, right? He's peeing on the ground trying to spell his name out. Classic. And one of the Saudi religious police witnessed this. And the very next week, he was pulled out front and caned in front of all of us, you know, and this is, you know, a 10, 11 year old kid, you know, your parents have no control over that. You know, it was just, it's brutal. The people that do it are professionals and it's not like a typical cane. It's more like a piece of bamboo, you know, imagine like a fishing pole, you know, it's diameter, thicker at one end, very narrow at the other, has a whipping motion when you sling it. So, and what they do is it catches the back on the way up and can literally fillet a back open um, if done right. And they'll do that three times, you know, and the first one, I mean, you're already on the ground and they're telling you to stand up for the next two. They got a different way of doing things, you know. That sounds absolutely terrible, barbaric and Disgusting in so many ways. So now the context of your earlier comment seems to make a little bit more sense. If I saw my <laughs> yeah, best exactly. friend, you're like, OK, we'll come back and take care of business someday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because at first I was like, oh, that's harsh. But yeah, <laughs> if I saw my best friend get filleted by these whack job religious police of a religion that wasn't mine for a kid doing something that every male in history has tried to do. I would probably carry that with me for a while as well. And in the moment, I would be thinking, can I get away with strangling one of these guys? Or how many punches can I get in before I get caned? It's violating. And it's designed to be that way. It's designed to be humiliating on purpose, which doesn't feel good, especially to our sensibilities as Westerners who think that writing our name in the snow is normal. Or I guess there's no snow in Saudi Arabia, but you get the idea. Yeah, it was an amazing, incredible experience. But, you know, there was parts of it that were good. There was parts of it that were bad, just like anything. And it's not until you become an adult, you start realizing, okay, it's just the way they do business, you know. And I have to say there are kids in this country that probably deserve the same damn thing, you know, depending on what you do. Yeah, maybe not for trying to write your name in whiz, but definitely (laughs) there may be a room for spare the rod, spoil the child at some place for some people. Yeah. Okay. That makes a little bit more sense now. And so you move on to SEAL Team 6. I see here also that you worked with the National Security Agency. I didn't realize the NSA had military operations. I mean, what can we talk about with that? What does that involve? Well, the NSA, the National Security Agency, is a DOD entity. It falls under the Department of Defense. Most people don't realize that. They think it's kind of like just another sister agency to the CIA. 
the CIA is its own freestanding agency that is governed by, you know, uh, your intels are, you know, National Security Council and advisors and the president. So, but yeah, the NSA is a military entity and it has billets for all armed forces at it. And so I was there for three years as a SEAL and kind of played a liaison to our community, increasing communication and relationships. It included deployments. It included training. You name it. It was just like being at any other command, really, but just very different than what typical SEAL operations. Sure. It sounds a little ominous and scary because lately what we hear about the NSA is, okay, they're spying on us. And so the fact that they would have SEAL Team 6 quality military operations units inside it is kind of terrifying to <laughs> a lot of us. Yeah, it, it's a very, very powerful entity, without a doubt. I mean, I was more than impressed every day that I worked there. And every time I thought I knew the latest, greatest secrets, there was always another one that would surprise the crap out of me as far as like capabilities that place has. I mean, it's awesome. You know, as far as privacy and all that's concerned, it's like, you know, the way I look at it is if you're not doing anything wrong, who cares? I mean, I don't care. That's my personal opinion. I know people out there want their privacy and they deserve it. But for me, I'm like, I don't care who's looking at my crap because I'm not doing anything wrong. So, yeah, well, there's definitely going to be people who email me and go, how did you let that go? So I'm going to just say formally, <laughs> we're not going to touch yeah. that topic on yeah, purpose. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. 
from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Now, you're working with the NSA, you're working with SEAL Team 6. How much of being a SEAL is sitting in a base in California, swimming in the surf, and how much of this is overseas doing the stuff that everybody imagines you guys are doing? Yeah, it really depends where we are in time. So, you know, pre 9-11, you know, you had just regular op tempo, regular deployments, you know, you're gone for six months, you come home, you do training for anywhere between a year to a year and a half, and then you deploy again for six months. And you just kind of keep this rotation going of training, deploying, training, deploying. Then after 9-11, things changed considerably where, you know, we became more of a plug and play force. So as things happened overseas, you respond to it. And also those responses would also be coupled with deployments. So you could find yourself in a year gone, you know, three fourths of the time. And then the other quarter of the year, you're training. So you're never really home is the bottom line, you know, because most of the training that we conduct isn't even in the places where we live. We usually go out of town for training. So regardless, you're pretty much gone all year round. We've had a lot of dev grew. We've had a lot of SEALs come through our skills training boot camps in LA when we used to run them in New York as well. And of course, they didn't tell us all the time where they were from. A lot of them were like, yeah, I sell farm equipment. I'm like, you're in really good shape for a guy who sells tractors, you know? And then <laughs> yeah. three months after the program or during the program, we'd be talking about something and they're like, okay, look, here's the deal, but it's not public. It, they're not under some sort of official cover. They probably just didn't feel like talking about it all the time and telling war stories and being the center of attention at a workshop where they're supposed to learn. So I definitely understand that. But it seems like there is some training that's just very, very basic that you guys undertake where you learn things that supposedly are gonna get you past a checkpoint or past some sort of basics of an interrogation. 
But I'll tell you, for guys that have millions of dollars in training from shooting to skydiving and, and weapons and deployment and all the survival stuff, the stuff that I've been hearing and seeing from a lot of the guys that come out of your training programs, the social element, the social dynamics element, the counter-interrogation stuff is just like, it's too basic. Is that because you guys aren't expected to use this? Or why is the emphasis on that stuff so so low? Is it just because shooting has got a thousand times the ROI of these particular skill sets? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of skills that, you know, we would love to have. You'd love to be able to just plug into the matrix and be capable of everything, but there's only so much time. And at the end of the day, it's mission focused and the training is, you know, dovetails right into whatever the current mission is. And so, yeah, shooting bullets straight and accurately is obviously the primary objective. And and then there's a lot that comes with that, you know, so, you know, how you get in and how you get out, you know, is that going to be aviation platforms? Is that going to be maritime platforms? So, okay, well, once you identify that, well, that's the next level of training. And it just goes, you know, it's a domino effect from there. But when it comes to like that seer situation and that capture piece and interrogation stuff, yeah, we tend to throw that to the wayside. I mean, if there's anything that we rather go focus on, you know, jujitsu or boxing or something else, than sit there and, you know, do that stuff. That's not considered fun for us. You know, <laughs> we don't plan on getting captured. And like we started out, if it gets to that point, we'll probably just die fighting vice getting captured. So. Yeah, it seems like one of this particular type of skill set, the social dynamic, social engineering skill set, the training seems to be much more focused when it comes to guys like the Green Berets, to use the colloquial term here, because they're just deployed in country dealing with the local population for so long. I would imagine it seems like from what you guys are doing, if you're dealing with the local population, it's because you accidentally ran into somebody taking a walk at four o'clock in the morning or a sheep herder type situation and not because you're hanging out in the village for six months training with people, right? Correct. It seems like a different type of mission. We pride ourselves on staying away from the FID mission, which is exactly special forces like primary job and they've been doing it for decades they're really good at it we leave that to them you know training guerrilla forces and surrogate forces and all that good stuff our job has always been direct action and reconnaissance and we don't care to know languages we don't care to be able to talk to anyone i think it's even in a meme or some kind of poster or something i mean we're, we're never really there to talk to you ever <laughs> so, right. Yeah. If we're meeting you, it's a bad day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's what keeps us getting. I mean, when you talk about, you know, mission focus, once you have a couple of successes dropping the hammer on people's foreheads, then they just keep on coming back for more. I think that was the key element to getting very high profile operations. You know, the last 10 years of my career was really that. I mean, any president who said go knew that he was sending in, you know, highly functioning sociopaths to just beat the shit out of whoever was in our way and then would get the mission done no matter what. So, <laughs> yeah. So wait a minute. Highly functioning sociopaths. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Yeah, I'm just being funny. But yeah. of course. Yeah. Do you think there's an element to the training that hits switches in the brain? I mean, are there guys that you see during training that kind of turn the corner and you go, wow, okay, didn't see that coming from this guy or what happened? Because the training, to get anybody to any 
super high level of performance takes a lot of breaking people down and building them back up again, as we all know. I mean, that could be the same thing for ice hockey as it is for what you're doing. The difference is you're playing much higher stakes because people die or you die in any given scenario almost 100% of the time, I would imagine. Otherwise, they wouldn't focus on these particular sorts of things. How does that change the mindset that you get when you come out of training? Yeah, it's interesting. When you go through BUDS, you know, my class had 180 guys. Six months later, there's 28 of us standing. And one thing that's I thought was always interesting, and I can only speak from personal experience, is that you can have a guy that grew up in a trailer park in New Mexico start day one right next to a guy who just graduated from Harvard. And six months later, and if they are still there together, they literally are the same person. They talk the same. They look the same. They are, without a doubt, like have become personality-wise, like the same kind of guy. It always blew me away. Anytime later, as you do more and more deployments with different groups of guys, how diversified on paper someone is. But when you put us all in a room, we really are like the same bunch of kind of perverted, rowdy guys, very barbaric in personality, but also at the same time, very professional and want to get the job done. Always want to be the first guy through the door. Couple that with the zero fail mentality. I mean, there is no room for failure. It's every mission is zero fail. It's a zero fail mission, zero fail mission. You put that all together, and I don't know that anyone could really explain it. It's just something you witness, and you kind of sit back at awe, and it's kind of cool, you know? It's something that we've talked about with a lot of different authors and a lot of different experts that have come on the show before. Stephen Kotler, for example, talking about flow, talking about the altered states that SEAL teams, especially in special forces, find themselves in, where you're moving like a school of fish without looking at each other. People are thinking the exact same thoughts. They're doing really cool stuff with fMRI, looking at your brains while you're operating, and it's like the same pieces are lighting up at the exact same time, and they're not even sure exactly how it works. And there's even some sort of discussion and testing going around whether or not you guys can read micro facial expressions in the dark across the room at somebody you're not looking directly at after the levels of training that you've experienced. Is this something that sounds familiar to you or does that sound like hocus pocus? The breakdown that you just gave, I mean, we obviously don't train to that, but yes, I can agree thoroughly that once you've been with a group of guys for an extended period of time and you gel, you know, through training and then operationally overseas, I mean, the gate in a guy's walk. I mean, I can see him 10 years later on busy New York City street, 100 yards in front of me and know it's him. You know, it's weird. Like, just by because I walked behind him for years, I know exactly how that guy walks, you know, is the best example I can give. And is probably the most popular one with us. But you know, a way a guy holds his weapon compared to a way other guys. To you, it looks like we all hold our weapons the same. But to us, we see the smaller differences that are identifiers, especially when you talk about operating on nods, you know, MVGs or darker environments, no white light kind of stuff. So if, you know, microfacial features and all that kind of stuff is how they're defining it, then yeah, I guess it's probably to a certain degree true, you know. But uh, I think that happens even in a family. We know what you can see your brother 100 yards away in New York and know it's your brother as well. It seems like there's a lot in this book that seems a little bit almost random, right? I mean, there's, okay, how to make a bamboo 
this and that, how to make a hammock, you know, building an Arctic fire, defending your ship against pirates. These are cool skills, no doubt, in 100 Deadly Skills, the survival edition that I'm, I'm looking at here. But when you're in training, are you learning this stuff all in SEAL training, or is this something that was just sparked by SEAL training that you researched on your own? Because So in the SEER training, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape is what that stands for. The program basically teaches for the civilians out there, which is most of us, the DOD program that trains civilians, military contractors to escape, evade, etc., this training, if this goes by the wayside, then it seems almost hard to believe that they're like, hey, look, you know, we need to teach you how to survive a human stampede or how to defend your ship against pirates. I get the gunshot wounds. I certainly get the hammock if you're going to be spending some time in the wilderness on a deployment or something like that and you need a quick nap. But some of these skills, do you learn this stuff at SEAL school or do you learn this stuff in the military or was this just an interest that got sparked by going through ridiculous amounts of training and probably suffering from a little bit of withdrawal? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so the first half of the book is very much survival oriented, but it's an updated version to the stuff that's on shelves today. It's a combination of what you learn over the years. You know, I did 20 years, so you learn some of this stuff in training. Some of it you learn on the job. Um, some of it is things you research, certainly on my own, as just in case kind of knowledge, you know, and it needs to be easy and simple and to retain it all. But the biggest reason for having it in this book was that it's not so much about a camping trip gone bad as it is every idiot we see in the news that takes a, a right hand turn because their phone told them to and they end up stuck in the snow and there's a blizzard coming that night. And they always decide to leave their car for some reason, you know, and then die 300 meters to three miles away from it. So it's more to give people their survival instincts back because we've been sticking our noses in our phones and technology for so long, we've kind of lost our natural ability to just survive. And so I kind of just wanted to highlight that. And yeah, some of it is tricks of the trade from the military. Some of it is tricks of the trade I learned just growing up, you know, overseas. And I have to give scouting credit, you know, I was the only thing to do in Saudi was Boy Scouts. And so, you know, I did that all the way up to Eagle and just wanted to still share some of that information. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I'm an Eagle Scout, super nerdy, but I'll tell you, some of the stuff I learned in Scouts has been the only stuff I remember learning as a kid, for real. Yeah, it lays the foundation. And yeah, when I came back to the States, it was weird because I was like, everybody that was kind of in Scouting did have that nerdy, geeky kind of personality and even look. And I was like, okay, I don't fit in with these guys. And I was out of there. And that was that, you know, for my BSA life, you know. So overseas, we were just a bunch of troublemakers and it, it didn't have a stereotype attached to it. It's unfortunate that when I came back, I totally saw it. I highly recommend it for any dad that has a little boy stick them in there regardless of the stereotype because they will get a ton of life skills that they deserve to know. Yeah, and if you're a dad out there and you're listening and your kid doesn't want to join Scouts because it's not cool, that means that your job is to get involved with the troop and make it cool. Because I'll tell you, our troop was cool because our Scoutmaster was a federal marshal, so we did shotgun, we speared frogs and roasted them, we went whitewater rafting, rappelling, rock climbing, we learned defensive driving and offensive driving as soon as we were old enough to on these cool closed courses, flipping cars and doing J-turns and stuff. This wasn't like basket weaving stuff. We were doing the cool stuff, so if you were in our troop and you were going on those high adventure trips, it was like a who's who 
of our high school, not just dorks are us, you know, learning about merit badge rabbit raising stuff, you know? I was totally in the wrong troop. I just learned how to tie a bunch of knots. Man. Yeah, we, we learned how to tie knots so we didn't fall off of the mountain that we were doing when we were falling yeah. down on our way to Class 5 Rapids. Like, we used the stuff. It wasn't just, like, making baskets. It was awesome. And so if your kid doesn't want to join, then make it cool. And if you can't, find another older person who can. We had a lot of cool influences there. It probably kept me out of jail, honestly, because I was doing it in high school. It took up a ton of time, especially the Eagle Project. And that was the time at which I was wiretapping, cloning cell phones, ended up being an FBI informant. If I'd had any more time, I would have done something stupid. It, it was only a matter of time. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. And I think, too, you know, if people have forgotten how it started. I mean, Boy Scouts was the first spy school. It was started by a cross-dressing spy himself, you know. Did not know that. Did not know that. So if people just looked at the history of scouting and its roots all the way back to England and, and how it began, it is the first spy school turning young boys into, uh, you know, future spies. Anyway, I found it beneficial. And, you know, believe it or not, the skills I learned in scouting, and you end up learning and relearning and advancing once you get in the military. So it definitely has its place if you plan on going down that route in life. I I originally got your first book as soon as it came out. I love this book. I swear to God, everybody that listens to the show needs to go get both of these books and put them in your bathroom first. Yeah. And, and I'll honestly <laughs> get two copies because, yeah, these are the perfect bathroom readers because you can learn an amazing skill in a dump or two. They're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yep, they are. I'd say they're the number one. So I highly recommend that. But I also recommend keeping them in your car because uh, what you were saying before was about leaving the car and all that. I had a friend. His name was James Kim. He worked at Tech TV back in the day. And him and his family were on a drive in the mountains in a winter storm. And they went off the side of a hill and got trapped. And it was like some ranger left the gate open so the hunters could get out, not thinking anybody would be dumb enough to go in. And so they were trapped for days. And they did all the right things, all the right things. James did everything right, except until the end where he left the car and he was going for help because, he, you know, he had a map. He had a printed map. He thought they knew where they were. And at the same point when he died four days later after leaving the car was when the family was rescued. So his wife and his kids were rescued because of everything that he did to save them. But he made that one mistake of leaving the car. Yep. My first copy of 100 Deadly Skills is in my car. I always keep that in my car. Now I've got the second one in my car, too, because they're great reference books. Yeah. No, thank you for that. That's the goal is it's informative, but also entertaining. And, you know, the illustrations go ahead and paint the right picture in everybody's mind so that they get it, you know, and the narrative doesn't repeat anything that the illustrations have and the illustrations don't repeat anything that the narrative has. So, yeah, while you're sitting on the toilet, you learn a whole lot and you don't even realize it. But most of all, it's really about, you know, getting people to be more preemptive, you know, to have that plan to a certain degree and then know what the proper response is to the myriad of threats and crises that are out there. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, 
Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. It seems like the kind of thing you should actually keep in your car. Because when I started reading it, I thought, eh, you know, I'm not going to sit down. I'm big on as-needed access to information. I read a lot of books. A lot of it's entertainment. A lot of it is for the show. But I'm not a fan of trying to memorize 100 survival skills from a book in the theory that I may, God forbid, in 30 years need one or two of them over that time. Yeah. It's something where you're going to find yourself in the snow, stuck, because you went through the wrong gate with your wife and kid, God forbid, and you're gonna need to crack this open and go, crap, I don't know how to actually stay warm right now with what I've got. Am I supposed to leave the car and go back the way I came, or am I supposed to stay in the car? How do I signal for help? You're not gonna remember that stuff if you read it a month ago, let alone three years ago. It's a good reference guide to have there, and I agree. Keep a copy in the restroom as well so you can get a feel for the stuff and know what's in there, but really, it's like the old, going back to Boy Scouts, the handbook, right? You keep it in your bag, you're not trying to memorize everything. You might memorize some knots here and there, but they expect you to use it as a reference. Going back to some of the tactics that are in here, I'm looking at some of the stuff that overlaps with what we teach in some way to the core of what we teach at The Art of Charm, spotting suicide bombers, escaping social unrest and riots. What are we looking for when we're looking for inspired terrorists and suicide bombers? I mean, what kind of stuff are we looking at here? Yeah, there's an unfortunate aspect to this because it's people that are gonna notice someone who's being radicalized are going to be people that are closest to that person, you know, whether it's close colleagues at work, family members really are the only ones that are going to see those changes. Everyone else is just going to look like the guy at work that sits two cubicles away. And that's the unfortunate side to this. So the reason being is because if you're really close to someone, you start to see these changes in them. And especially if it's a loved one, you're going to be the last person that's actually going to call the authorities. You know, So if you look at every time we've had an inspired attack of some sort here in the United States or even abroad, their family members after the fact will always interview and say, oh, yeah, I, I saw this, I saw that, or I thought something was going on, or yeah, I knew he was being radicalized for the past year or two. This is all unfortunate post-mortem information that you need to know ahead of time. So that's the first thing everyone should know, that it's not something you're going to notice just right out of the gate. It's something that you're going to have to look for, especially if you're not close to them. Right at the beginning of that radicalization period, their digital signature starts to kind of go away. So, for example, their Facebook page, you know, may have been in true name, and then all of a sudden you know, it's deleted or the account is closed. That's because they've gone and stood something up in an alias. Same with Twitter and all the other primary forms of social media. They will slowly get rid of their true name stuff off of that cyber world. And then they will go back in 
completely different. And if they're being coached right through like Inspired Magazine and, and other articles that are out there that these guys follow, you know, they're not doing it from their home computers or their work computers or their personal phones. They're literally setting up all this stuff from completely different IP and MAC addresses so that it makes it more difficult for them to be traced later if they start to get targeted by, you know, government intel services or law enforcement. So they're getting smarter and smarter when they do this. But what we're going to see on, you know, on the friend side is, oh, what happened to, uh, you know, John's account? I mean, one day he was here, now he's not. And people do that all the time doesn't mean they're terrorists. So the next level is, okay, what are they doing? Like daily habits and pattern of life. Well, if they're uh, suddenly going to the shooting range or shooting has become a hobby, like the San Bernardino couple, you know, he took on shooting, you know, all of a sudden, he also had an area that no one was allowed to go into no family members, anything. So once again, if you know, it's going to be behavior, 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 that's going to change. And that's going to spark that initial like interest. And that's the thing. It's not necessarily about calling the cops and assuming everyone's a terrorist just because they did a couple of things. It's more about if you see it, then go and ask them, hey, what do you got going on? And don't take, you know, no for an answer or don't worry about it. You've got to actually kind of pursue it a little bit because they're not going to give it up. And if you feel like it's true now, you know, perception has become reality. Then, of course, if you see something, say something, get law enforcement involved. And that's kind of what it breaks down in the book is the behaviors, the social side, and then physical habits. You know, if they're taking on shooting. They've got they're suddenly becoming secretive. They're less socialized. They're, you know, spending more time alone and becoming a loner. That's just some of what it talks about. Yeah, this is really interesting stuff because it's about establishing a baseline, right? You have to have that. Otherwise, you can't necessarily tell. It's all 2020 hindsight. Exactly. And it's the unfortunate piece to it. It's all hindsight bias. What's an express kidnapping? Express kidnappings is what, you know, Ryan Lochte supposedly happened to him, right? You get into a taxi. The taxi driver isn't a taxi driver. He's a criminal. He holds a gun to your head and drives you around from ATM machine to ATM machine and then lets you go. It's very temporary. It's focused on, you know, the short term money, financial gain, but they have become more and more violent. You know, not too many people are actually getting killed, though it does happen. But the violence is, you know, maybe, you know, you get hit in the head a couple of times just so they send the message that, you know, if you resist, then I will kill you. But they make sure they hit you ahead of time to kind of let you know they're serious. Then they'll take you around from uh, ATM machine, ATM machine, make you max out all your cards and then usually let you go. And then that's that. That's your typical express kidnapping. How do you know you're in one of those? Because here's the problem, right? This type of thing happened to me, got into a fake taxi, kept driving further and further away from the city. And my brain, of course, after I figured out what was kind of happening, looking back, it ended in a physical altercation. I'm, I'm still here, so we know how that shook out. But it was kind of like, I don't think I'm being taken to an ATM, but I always wonder if things would have shaken out differently if you were doing that. I just assumed this is 2000, so we didn't hear about these. I just kind of assumed I was on my way to get chopped up into little pieces. Mm -hmm. It seems like we would have been driving towards town where there are more ATMs if that were the case. How do we know if this is what's happening or do we treat all abductions exactly the same, which is always assume the worst case scenario? 
Yeah, I mean, generally, that's what I recommend. Yeah, you got to treat it as worst case, you know, and leverage kind of like that run, hide, fight philosophy for most of what's been going on these days. You know, if you can run, you should. If you can't, then you should hide. If you're going to hide, hide behind cover. Cover stops bullets. If there's concealment, great. But concealment is, you know, defined as like curtains. You know, it's not going to stop a bullet, but it'll hide you. If you can't do any of that, because maybe you're in a confined space, like a train in Europe, or you're in a bathroom in Orlando, then you have to fight. And if you're going to fight, you fight as a team, and you grabbed as many improvised weapons as you can. Um, and you kind of go for the MMA style of, if you control the hips or the head, then you control the body. And of course, you want to always get control of the weapon first. But in a an express kidnapping situation, certainly if the first stop, you run for it, you know, especially if it's an ATM machine. And like we talked about at the beginning, if there's a slow roll anywhere in there, I'd rather fall out of the car while it's rolling and, you know, bang my head than keep on going with that guy. So distance obviously always increases survivability. And that's kind of the main goal, I think. Sure. Yeah, it seems like that's a great concept, right? Distance survives survivability. Don't jump out of a moving car at 40 miles an hour. But it's good to have a framework for this, the run, hide, fight framework, because otherwise you do what I do when I was in that car, which is go, this isn't really happening. Is this happening? What do I do now? Do I get out? Nah, we're going kind of fast. Maybe I should wait till we stop. Then we stop and I go, well, I don't know where I am. So maybe I should wait until we're in a better, more well-lit area. And I boxed myself in, I painted myself into a corner where I couldn't run, I obviously couldn't hide in the car, and I had to fight. And luckily this was before mobile phones, so when we finally did stop at the place where he was going to take me, and he was going to get out of the car, I was able to stop him there. But had he called ahead or sent a text message, there could have been people outside waiting for us and that would have been the end of it, or of me. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the unfortunate part of technology. It's, it's great, but it's great for bad guys too. Yeah, I think you were thinking the right way. Um, they did a study after the Mumbai attacks, you know, the FBI and the people that survived in the different hotels, they asked them, well, what were your thoughts? <laughs> you know, and they really could only come up with two things, either they're going to be rescued or they were going to die. Most people tend to steer away from that self-reliant, self-rescue thing. I think it's changing. And that's, once again, the goal of the books is to get people to be more self-reliant, start thinking about self-rescue, and always try to fill the gap between, you know, 911 and when law enforcement actually shows up. So I think you were thinking down the right path, obviously, and then when you needed to fight, you did. And yeah, you're here behind a microphone now, so it was all good. But um, it definitely can always take a turn for the worse when you least expect it. And that's why you need to have a plan and act those plans out immediately. Yes. Well, of course, yes, I got lucky in that it did work in the end. There wasn't the technology for him to plan better. But I do go through the scenario in my head often, as you might imagine. I've talked about it on the show often as well. But had it been fresh in the mind, never go to the secondary location, then the second I thought of it, I would have stopped trying to do that thing where you talk yourself out of it, like this probably isn't happening. Oh, it's gonna be okay. Well, you know, he's probably just, you start making excuses because it's so uncomfortable. If I'd known about Run, Hide, Fighter, if I'd known about this, look at even September 11th, we can armchair quarterback that thing all day, but had people realized almost the same thing where they couldn't run, they couldn't hide, but they could fight, we might have had a different outcome in that scenario. But people kept thinking, we're gonna land in some Mexican airport and you know everybody will be fine. 
if you look at that particular scenario, that type of thing will never happen again because you're gonna have so many agitated passengers on board that anybody who tries to hijack an American airliner with a box cutter is gonna get ripped limb from limb in just seconds. Without a doubt. And that's why I put that skill in the latest book, you know, to uh, jettison the hijacker, you know, <laughs> so how to do it properly. <laughs> I saw that. It's it's basically the only instructions on how to throw someone out of an airplane that you'll ever need. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, boy. A lot of the stuff that we're talking about comes back to awareness. And in the first book, you've got like the four tiers of awareness when you're talking about blending into any environment, the personal awareness, cultural, situational and third party awareness. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think people overuse situational awareness. You know, they say it all the time, but they don't really break it down. So that's why I put that in there. And it was the number one weapon I had whenever I was operating alone from time to time. So, you know, personal awareness is all about projection and demeanor management. It's looking in the mirror before you walk out the door. That has to be coupled with cultural awareness, which is, you know, the social etiquette and protocols in the geographical area in which you're standing in. And so you combine the two your cultural awareness and your personal awareness, you combine them together. And I always use the example of women traveling to India with their cow, like rawhide purses. You know, it's the last thing you want to do because they look at the cow far differently than we do. We look at it as something to eat. They, in certain provinces, worship it. It's the same thing for a lot of different things we do versus what happens overseas. But point being is that you're making yourself a target and you don't even know it. Whether it's out of ignorance or just being stupid or just being a proud American, these are the things you kind of have to study up on, you know, and with the power of Google, it doesn't take but a minute or two. But you have to take your personal awareness, which once again, projection, demeanor management, how you walk, how you talk, what you wear, all plays a part with cultural awareness, which is really the do's and don'ts, you know, eye contact, handshakes, what do I do when I eat with these people? What do I wear? What do I don't wear? And these are all important for reducing basically threat reduction. And then what's coupled with that is third party awareness, which is knowing that anybody can look at you from afar, judge you and go ahead and make a decision on what they think you are, you know, and so the proud American piece, you know, we like to wear our t-shirts with our big iconic, whether it's a university or an NFL football team or you name it, we like to throw it out there. But it's important to realize that you have organized crime, law enforcement, intelligence agencies, innocent bystanders that all make up your third party awareness. And the minute you start realizing that, okay, there's all these different groups and people out there watching me, observing me, and making decisions about me, it'll start to help with your personal awareness, cultural awareness piece, which then leads to the big one, which isn't so big anymore once you define the other three, which is situational awareness. And a lot of times this is defined as like that three-foot bubble, but it needs to be beyond that. It's everything from your seatbelts on, you got more than a half a tank of gas, I've got minutes on my SIM card, to, you know, literally paying attention to what's going on in your environment based on what you're doing and where you're going. You know, I always tell people, you can't, obviously, if you're trying to pay attention to everything, then you're paying attention to nothing. <laughs> it's something you have to make and slowly make a habit into everything you do each day. And I always compare it to the seatbelt. There was a time when none of us wore seatbelts and you never received a ticket for it. And there was never an annoying chime in your car if you didn't have it on. But now today you put it on, you take it off dozens of times in a day and you don't even remember doing it. And that's what you have to get 
your levels of awareness too. It's not something you're just going to start doing overnight. It's something that you do little by little each day. And before you know it, you're doing it without realizing it. Hopefully, paying attention to all of those important cues and clues in your environment. Now you're navigating the world a lot safer and more secure. So how do we start this process, right? Because you're right. If we start going, okay, I can't wear any sports gear. Okay, I got to learn micro expressions. Okay, I got to be aware of everybody around me. All right, I got to be aware of my own body language. We teach a lot of this stuff at the Art of Charm. This is what boot camp is all about. And we have our own ways to sort of impart this knowledge, of course, in a crash course and with drills and exercises later on over time and even before people get here. But where do you start with it, right? I assume what you mean is we're trying to limit the amount of communication that we're doing unintentionally, like my University of Michigan hoodie that says I am American, right? It's very uniquely American. And I know we often lump Canadians in with the United States. This is one thing where it's just, we have that sports university, sports culture. No one else does. It is a massive indicator. Nobody thinks about that. Right? We might wear that overseas thinking, oh, I'm blending in and you're not. You know, one of the things that for most people, maybe not for you guys, but most of the things that dress us in the morning is our ego. And it usually is. And even when we go shopping, it's our ego. Your ego is always yearning and it's hungry to define you as something different than the person sitting next to you on that subway train or driving down the road with the car you drive. It's ego, ego, ego is probably 99% of the problem. And so once you start to realize that you can start putting your ego in check, then all of a sudden you become a much grayer person. And that's why I always push the gray guy kind of mentality is you want to be gray. I mean, we sit in international terminals waiting for our planes all the time. And you're really only noticing a very small percentage of the people in there. You're noticing the people that are dressed a certain way or the chick with the nice ass, or, you know, it could be a guy that, wow, he looks like he's in better shape than me. Or I wonder if I could kick that dude's ass. Who knows what's running through your mind, but you're seeing all this walk by, but you're missing 95% of the other people that are kind of gray. And that's what you want to be. And that's what you want to do, especially if you're traveling abroad. But it's all about being gray. And it's all about putting your ego in check. And you want to be the person that no one notices walk by. It seems like that's a different lifestyle mindset, essentially, because it's really easy to become so paranoid, like no brands, always wear dark glasses and a hat, but not a hat with a logo on it. I mean, where do we draw the line? When you're walking around in Texas, do you have your North Face jacket on or do you just never travel? I mean, how do you apply this in your own life or are you selectively applying this? Because it's kind of like our concept here at AOC of body language, you have to build this into your identity level personality. You can't go, all right, I'm gonna have confident nonverbal communication when I go to this networking event. It has to be done as a set of habits, otherwise you're gonna look corny, right? You can't just decide to be incognito when you're traveling. You're gonna look like you're wearing a fake mustache and you know the big nose glasses disguise. It's gonna come across awkward unless this is something that you've built into your personality. Yeah, I agree totally. I mean, like I said, like your seatbelt, you know, it took a while for us to get there, but it becomes a habit over time. So as far as wardrobe is concerned, I mean, yeah, I mean, neutral colors instead of the flashy ones. It's better to have, you know, maybe the embroidered polo symbol on your shirt than it is to have the fully silkscreen University of Texas printed on the front. So it's give and take. It's an exchange of what you have that works and that you already wear and getting rid of the other stuff that you might already have. I mean, that's just wardrobe specific. I mean, a lot of times your environment, you know, is going to dictate 
always. So for us, we'd always hit thrift stores. You know, if I'm going to be in Europe, you go to the thrift stores in Europe, you pick up a lot of stuff there and you have it. And is that realistic for, you know, the average person? Probably not. But if you're looking to blend in as a hipster, then you're you're set. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But I don't back paranoia or, you know, putting foil on your head or any of that. I'm not a fear monger either, but there is a balance, right? You're not going to put on dark shades and you're not trying, that stands out. Now you look like somebody suspicious and you're going to end up in handcuffs, you know? So yeah, you know, if you have all North Face stuff, it's as simple as taking a, uh, a black Sharpie and, you know, turning the white embroidered North Face thread and sharpening it out to a darker color. So it's not standing out. You know, it's simple things that you can do to current stuff that can allow you to be a lot less attractive, I guess is what you say, because most of the time we just all want to be attractive. And that's something you can easily put in check. We just choose not to. Is this something where you could like do some basic reconnaissance before you go to an area that you're not comfortable with and like just go to somebody's Facebook page and see what the general populace is kind of wearing and kind of emulate that just so you kind of have an idea what the baseline is before you get there instead of going to like a thrift store and getting older clothes, which are maybe out of style? Yeah, of course. Of course. You can Google image anything these days, you know. So that's the beauty of just doing some research. And yeah, you got to be more preemptive, you know, and proactive with everything. And I think that's what allows change to be a little more successful is if you mentally go, all right, you know, I'm going to what if what I'm going to do if someone comes in this restaurant right now, we always hear that, but actually walking through it and setting up invisible thresholds in our mind. If you do see someone suspicious and they they cross that invisible threshold, that's going to you know create a response that decision you've already made. I mean, at the end of the day, the goal to all this, whether it's how you dress or what you do in crisis, the goal is to already have your decisions made when it's in peace, right? You don't want to make decisions in crisis because they tend to be the wrong ones. What you want to do in crisis or anything that you go do is act them out. You want to act it out. You want to act those decisions out when you need to, which means you have to think about some things before you even walk out the door. You're going to piecemeal this stuff together over time. It certainly isn't going to happen overnight. Clint, thank you so much. This has been enlightening in a lot of ways. We went in a lot of different directions here, but there's a lot on awareness. There's a lot on survival. There's a lot, of course, on your backstory, and we appreciate your time and your your availability. No, thank you for having me, guys. It's awesome. Love talking to you. Great big thank you to Clint. The book title is 100 Deadly Skills. There are a few different editions here. And remember, at the very least, it can stop bullets. No guarantees, right? Put a little asterisk by that one. Might be worth picking up a few copies. Of course, that'll be linked up in the show notes as well as the Twitter. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Clint on Twitter. That will also be up there along with my Twitter, which is at The Art of Charm. And if you can't find the show notes, tap your phone screen, tap your iPad, they should pop right up. If you're listening on a web browser, well, you're probably looking at the show notes right with the player there, so just never fear. We got you covered. Our boot camps, our live program details, those are at bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. We've been running these for almost a decade, almost as long as we've been running the show, and to see people become a part of the AOC family and the growth they experience over the next months and years is just nothing short of amazing. Remember, we do sell out a few months in advance, so if you're thinking about it a little bit, get in touch with us ASAP, get some info from us, 
plan ahead. And we also have the Art of Charm Challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or you can text the word charmed, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. The challenge is about improving your networking skills and your connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop personal and professional relationships with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, and I do regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. It'll make you a better networker, it'll make you a better connector, and it'll make you a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text charmed in the US to 33444. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, and the show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Word of mouth is everything. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.